Before we get to the text in Acts 17, this morning the the topic that we're addressing, we've been addressing a number of topics related to kind of hot button issues in our culture. The last number of weeks we looked at, at transgender issues and we've looked at racism. This week we're looking at pluralism. And for for a number of decades now, both Christian leaders and non-Christian leaders have been saying that who are who are students of our culture that that really the defining thought the defining, defining movement, the worldview that defines who we are in Western culture is this idea of pluralism. And that might not be helpful for us because w- what is pluralism? Well, pluralism, in one sense, simply refers to the fact that we live in a time and a place where we have a huge diversity of race, value systems, heritage, language, culture, and religion. In that sense, pluralism is an undeniable fact. We live in a very diverse, multicultural Western world. Okay, here, here are some stats, just if you haven't noticed. Uh, but this is according to the National Household Survey. This is done here in Canada at, in 2011. It was completed by 33 million Canadians. So this is a good representative. At that time, in 2011, Canada had seven over 7 million people who were born outside of the country, foreign-born. That represents just over 20% of the total population of Canada who weren't born here in Canada. And that's the highest proportion among all the G8 countries. And that those people represent close to 200 different countries as a place of birth. So a very multicultural country we live in. Most immigrants who come to Canada live in the most populous cities. Take Toronto, for instance. Toronto in 2011 had 25 million immigrants. That accounts for 46% of Toronto's total population. So almost half of Toronto wasn't born in Canada. Okay. Um, same, th- same kind of stats are true in, in, in uh, Montreal or in Vancouver. Here in Calgary, we're the fourth highest number of immigrants, so just over 300,000, representing just over 26% of our total population were born somewhere outside of Canada. There's also a growing religious diversity, not just ethnicities, here in Canada, according to this 2011 survey, out of these 33 million people, 13 million people identified themselves as Roman Catholic, representing 40% of Canada's population as a whole, the largest religious group here in Canada. Uh, 2 million said they're part of the United Church, 1.6 million part of the Anglican Church. Baptists were down at number five at 500,000 Baptists across Canada, representing 2% of the population. Now, in 2011, the same stats, two and a half million people identified themselves either Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, or Buddhist. Okay, and these numbers back in 2011 are just going to continue to increase for, for more of these Eastern religions or faiths. Um, because before 1971, those who were Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, or Buddhist made, only, made up only 2.9% of those who were immigrating here to Canada. But between 2001 and 2011, those who were Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, or Buddhist have made up just over 33% of the immigrants coming to Canada. So this, this religious diversity is going to continue to increase according to current immigration trends. Now, I don't give you these stats and say, well, that's a, that's a bad thing. Uh, for many, pluralism is cherished. Our own prime minister says our diversity is our strength. Multiculturalism is good. There's no, there's no reasons needed to be given. It's just to have the diversity of culture here in our country is a good thing. And I think it is a good thing. It's a good thing for churches, for one thing. For the church, we have the nations 
coming here to us where we can now share the gospel and they have ties back to their places where we can now, even here in our city in Calgary, be preaching the gospel to nations all around this world. We also see the rich beauty and the diversity of different ethnicities and cultures and food and clothing and and we can appreciate and learn from all these kinds of people all around the world who are not like us and so pluralism in this sense we can see it's a good thing and it's certainly a fact in our day and age that we can't deny or avoid but what i'm talking about here this morning is not just a diversity in terms of ethnicity in our country but what I'm talking about here this morning is a pluralism in another sense, in more of a, of a way of thinking, a, 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 a philosophical sense. Pluralism in this sense is the idea that no one culture or religion and, and their way of thinking is right or true. Okay, because because we have such a diversity of of faiths and religions and idea about who we are and who God is, um, what is seen as the Western ideal, the idea of pluralism is if we want peace and harmony in the midst of diversity, then we need a couple of ground rules. And the first ground rule is there's no such thing as absolute truth. You can't say that you're true and that and that's and that you're right and that somebody else is wrong in this in this pluralistic, multicultural, very diverse age. And that's 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 arrogant to say that. And so the first rule of pluralism, this way of thinking, is that no one can say that they are they are right. There's there's gotta be aspects of the truth in all these different people groups and these different ideas about religion and God. And so the second thing is there is the first rule of this view of plural, um, pluralism is there no such thing as absolute truth. And what is ironic about that phrase is that there is no such thing as absolute truth is an absolute truth claim. That is so it, it makes the you've already defeated when you, when you say there is no such thing as absolute truth. You're making a true statement. And so you, you have just um laid waste to your own argument, essentially. Uh, You're contradicting yourself by making a truth claim and saying there is no such thing as a truth claim whenever you say there is no such thing as absolute truth. Second thing, because there is no absolute truth, but only relative truth, you can't tell someone that they're wrong. And so we hear this much in our day and age. It's politically correct. It's polite to say, I'm glad you're a Christian. I'm glad it works for you. It's not for me. And we hear that all the time. We want to share people about the, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And hey, Tim, I'm glad that works for you. It's not for me. And so that is the that is the way that we're told that we disagree rightly in our day and age by acknowledging there's relative truth and there can be something that's true for you, but it's not true or needful for me. Now, there's so many different things that, that we can go to in the scriptures to speak about pluralism and the idea of relative truth. But what I want to do is focus on one particular issue today is, is how we as a church communicate the truths of scripture into a culture which says there is no such thing as absolute truth. Or into a culture that says, no, we, 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 we want to have a diversity of religious opinion. That is a good thing. There's no way that, that one faith can say they're right and someone else is wrong. And so how do we as a church actually approach that and communicate the truth of Scripture in our day and age? And how I'm going to do that 
Ultimately, we're going, to, we're going to get ourselves to Acts 17. We're going to look at that different passage. But before I go to Acts 17, first I want to talk about things that we, that we don't want to do. We want to avoid because the, the modern church ha, has, has seen culture and, and religious faith and, and people's convictions change all around them. Such that many people in the church today say, say, what happened to our world? I remember this is everyone was a Christian, quote unquote. We just, we went to church on Sunday. This is the way things are. And the world today is completely different. And so how do we even approach this world? I feel like I'm completely in a foreign place. And so the church today has tried to adapt in a number of ways. And what I'm going to be focusing on here this morning is what I call the church on a search for relevance. The church today is searching for how are we relevant in a pluralistic age where we have so many different voices around us. How can we as a church have, have a voice in all the, the myriad of voices that we have in our culture? How can we be relevant so, so our voice is heard? Okay? That's the, the issue facing the church. Okay, and now what I... What I what I don't want to say is that that a desire to be relevant and to have your voice heard is a bad thing, okay? Because some people think, say, if, if you want to be relevant as a church, you're, you're immediately bad. This, this is wrong. Now, we, we want to be relevant in the sense that we want the, the, the scriptures to be heard. We want the truth of our Lord Jesus. We want to communicate that in our day and age, okay? But there's been... A desire for relevance to be heard that have led to some bad practices. And I want to mention three of them here this morning. The first is this. <clears throat> consumerism. Consumerism. It has been nicknamed seeker-sensitive by, by some others. But the idea of consumerism is that the church, in the midst of a changing culture and a changing ideas about, about truth and truth claims... Realize that that, that church, churches are, are people are, are leaving the church and they don't find the church interesting or relevant anymore. And so they go to the community around them and they ask people who are not going to church and they say, "Why aren't you going to church?" And as they as they get this cultural analysis and the feedback and surveys, they find out that a lot of people aren't going to church because, well, the music is really just old fashioned. Can't connect with the music, or or the, the things that the preacher says like. Boy, that's not relevant to me at all. It's not meeting me where I'm at, and he's speaking in a language that sounds so archaic. Um, there's, there's this, there's, there's not, not needs for for my children or for myself, and so people can have all these lists of of why they don't go to church. It's, it's the services are too long, they're too boring, and so what does the church do? Well, the solution's obvious. Then we need to change the church to meet the, the felt needs of those who aren't attending. And so we need music that, that appeals to the people who are not going to church. And we need, we need let's bring in dramas, let's bring in puppet shows, let's bring in other comedies, um, let's bring in more entertainment. And so this is what people would like because it's, they're not going to say it's boring if we do those kinds of things. Let's have shorter sermons, not too long. You know, Let's have at least one hour. One hour in, you're in, and you're out an hour later. That would be ideal. People would come then and, um, and, and speak on sermon topics uh, that would be really relevant and, and really meet uh, the modern needs of, of people. And so I don't want to be too quick to condemn those who, who consider the culture around them 
and who want to be a faithful witness for Christ in the midst of that. Okay? We need to consider those whom we are speaking to. But whenever we change the message of the church from one that is a call to follow Christ and to deny yourself, one that is completely selfless and giving yourself in love and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ out of a gratitude and a thankfulness and an awe of what he has done for you, and reversing that to a more of a selfish consumerism. What can God do for me? What can the church do for me? How can Jesus meet my needs here and now? We've completely flipped what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at its worst, it has led to the abuses of what we call the prosperity gospel, where we have people coming to church, paying money to preachers because they want their best life now. They want the new car. They want a nice house. They will have a jet like some of these preachers have. And so they just want to be healed. They want to have their marriages fixed. They want their children to love them. And so they go to a church who promises these things. And so they listen attentively and they give their money and they give their time and they know nothing about the gospel that that is meant not to meet all their needs here and now, but it's meant to deliver them from sin and from pride and from greed and to give them a love for God so they love others. And they, don't, they don't even know that. And so we've changed Jesus and the gospel into something that needs to be marketed to appeal to people's felt needs so they buy in and attend when we've lost the gospel. So consumerism is deadly. And consumerism works because we're all consumers. That's why Google can rake in $90 billion a year and Apple 200 and some billion dollars a year. Because when a new iPhone comes out, we need it. Right? Don't we? Because you, you remember how... Play, play with me here a little bit. All right? You, you remember how, how life was before smartphones, right? You remember how life was before smartphones? And your life is so much better now, isn't it? You're so much happier now because you have that smartphone, right? Because consumers, we're stuck on that rat race because we're always consuming because what is promised is going to bring us happiness and joy. That new toy, that new phone, that new car, that new house never actually satisfies and if we sell the church in the same way, we're going to a corporation like Apple and we'll just give people what they want and we'll keep, oh, you want this? Okay, we'll meet this, meet this need. It's never going to satisfy people because the only thing that can meet our satisfaction is when our hearts are filled with love towards our great God and creator and towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And we realize that he meets all of our needs and we rest in that. And so consumerism is not a way to find relevance in our day and age today. The second error that we can fall into today as a modern church is another ism called inclusivism. What is inclusivism? Well, to be exclusive means that you're more narrow in your thinking. There's, there's truth here and, and this is error. And so to be exclusive is, is the historical faith of the of Christianity. That is, there is salvation found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless you repent of your sin and believe in Christ, you will perish. Following Muhammad can't save you. Following Joseph Smith and his teachings can't save you. Just being a good person and being sincere who you are that can't save you and you need to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is exclusivism. Inclusivism 
is another way that the church desires to be relevant in the sense that, yeah, if you are a sincere Muslim, if you are a sincere Roman Catholic or even sincere atheist, that's okay. If you're sincere, you're striving your best, then, then you can go to heaven and, and you, are, you are on your way to heaven. Now, there's some inclusivists who, who want to try to follow the scriptures and they say, well, in the end of the day, everyone is saved by Jesus, even though they might not even know it here and now. And that's the way they try to harmonize biblical truth with this idea that salvation goes to everyone. And the whole reason why you say salvation goes to everyone is because you want a voice in our current culture. Because you have, you have sold yourself and you have sold truth to bow down to this idea that there is no real truth. And that all the religions have some good in them. And so you can, you can affirm that even as a Christian by saying, yes, if you're sincere, you can attain to salvation. You can have your sins forgiven. And, and as a Christian, you can say, yeah, Jesus can do that in the background, even though he might not be in the foreground. But that's completely contrary. Listen to what it says in Acts 4.12. It says, there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Romans 10.13-14 to 14 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That is, if no one is preaching, if no one is hearing, if no one is believing, no one's getting saved. No one's calling upon the name of the Lord. Now, it takes some very sophisticated and smart men with a lot of, num- a lot of letters after their name to, to mangle these verses to make them say something that they don't say. So they can be inclusive and be accepted in our pluralistic age. And what's sad is there's a recent survey, over 33% of evangelicals going to evangelical churches also believe some form of inclusivism, that a faithful Muslim can be saved or someone who, who is not actually following Christ. They can go to heaven. This is a common modern way where again, We trade the gospel for something else to appeal to our culture so we have a voice. It's not not scriptural. The third way we can do this, perhaps this is the most popular. I tried to think of an ism for this one, but I couldn't. This one is called removing the offense. Removing the offense. What I mean by this is that the modern church, in order to have a voice, says, well, let's not talk about things like hell. Or sin. Because people don't like to hear about that. They want good thoughts and warm feelings and fuzzy things. And so let's not talk about hell or sin. If we're going to mention it, mention it very quickly. And let's talk a lot about love. Or perhaps we should stay silent on the roles of men and women. Because the roles of men and women, as the Bible teaches it, is not popular in our day and age. You want a good way to to scare people out of your church? Teach them about the roles of men and women. How about sexual immorality? How about teaching on homosexuality, on sex before marriage, or relationships with unbelievers? Because these topics are unpopular and offensive, many churches are silent. Let's remove that offense. 
And I'm a sad how many churches don't deal with some of these issues that the Bible so clearly speaks about and how many pastors, how many pastors who sit behind pulpits have given up the biblical narrative in the book of Genesis and have embraced evolution or are sympathetic to it. Where they no longer believe that God has created this world in six 24-hour days by the word of his power. And where they think that our origins rather are from puddles of goo down through billions of years of evolution. In all these cases, trying to remove the offense of scripture in order to have a voice in our pluralistic culture, what we end up doing is silencing one voice, God's voice. We're trying to be a voice into our culture and at the same time we're gagging God and shutting out his voice from even speaking to our culture. We're doing the very opposite of what we're supposed to do. In order to try to be relevant, in order to try to have a voice, we end up marketing the gospel as something else. We end up saying, um, by, by embracing inclusivism or by trying to hide the offense of scripture, we're in fact suppressing the voice of God. We're denying in our practice the authority of scripture. We're denying in our practice the sufficiency of scripture. We're denying in our practice the power of the gospel in conversion. We're silencing God in order to appeal to our culture. It's completely backwards. And so what do we need in our pluralistic day? How then are we relevant without compromise in our pluralistic society? I'm convinced that in a world that has no such thing as absolute truth, what people need most of all is truth. When the world says there is no truth, we should come as Christians and say, yes, there is truth. There, think about it. There is nothing more relevant than eternal truth. And that's what we have here in the scriptures. There is nothing more relevant than timeless, ageless, transcultural. It doesn't matter what time, place, age you are. Eternal truth is always going to be relevant. When you have a preacher behind a pulpit preaching the Bible week in and week out, they will be relevant because God's voice is what is true and God's voice is what is relevant. And so that's the answer in a nutshell, what we need in our pluralistic day. And I know I said we're going to get to Acts 17 and we will get there in just a moment. There's a few verses I want to read from the Gospel of John before we get there, okay? This Again, we, we've, we've kind of seen what pluralism is, how we have made mistakes as a church to try to have a voice in our culture, but in fact, we've silenced the voice of God. And so we need to let God speak. Okay, and I, and I want to, again, have this firm in our mind before we look at Acts 17. I'm going to read a number of verses from the Gospel of John. You're probably not going to be able to flip and catch up, so you might want to just write these down. The first is in John 18. We have Jesus talking to Pilate. Pilate is interrogating Jesus because Jesus is being called out by the Jewish leaders as one who needs to die. He needs to be crucified. He's a blasphemer. He, he's, he, he's an insurrectionist. He needs to be removed. And so Pilate is interrogating him. 
And in John 18, 37, Pilate said to him, So, you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. We should be listening at this point. Jesus is saying, this is, this is why I've come. This is why I've been born. And he says, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. This is what I've come. This is the light coming into darkness to bear witness of the truth, to speak and to be what is true. Now, Pilate asks a very insightful question in his pluralistic time. What is truth? <laughs> and to that answer, to answer Pilate's question of what is truth, really we, we need to consider all of what was spoken before in the Gospel of John. We read in the Gospel of John that God the Father is true. Jesus says in John seven twenty eight, He who sent me is true. John fourteen six, we see that God the Son is true. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God, the Spirit is truth, John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And so what is true in our day and age? Father, Son, and Spirit are all defined in the gospel as true. God is truth. And so what the Father speaks is true. Jesus prays in John 17, 17. He prays, sanctify them in the truth. Father, your word is truth. What Jesus speaks is true. In John 8, 31, it says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And what the Spirit speaks is true. John 16, 13 says this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he, he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you things that are to come. And so God the Father is truth. God the Son is truth. God the Spirit is truth. And when God the Father speaks, he speaks truth. When God the Son speaks, he speaks truth. When God the Spirit speaks, he speaks truth. And why is it so important? Because in John 17, 3, he says, Jesus says, this is eternal life. That they might know you, the true God, and your son, Jesus, whom you sent. That's eternal life. That's abundant life. That, that is life. To know this one true God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and to understand the truth that He has spoke, the truth that He has acted out in history through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have here recorded in the words of Scripture. The Word is truth. And so we talk about what is relevant for our day and age today. How do we have a voice in a pluralistic culture that says there is no truth? What this world needs so desperately is to know the true God and to know his word and what he has said. That's what the scriptures say. And this word is always relevant and it leads to eternal life. I can't think of anything more relevant than to have eternal life and how you might have it. And how you may have forgiveness of sins. There's nothing more relevant than to know this one true God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have that in his true word. Now, Acts 17. <clears throat> Acts 17. This, that was all by way of introduction to bring us to Acts 17. And Acts 17, the reason why we're going here this morning is 
How do we communicate that truth in a pluralistic culture? Do we just go and say, God is true. Father, Son, Spirit is true. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You need to believe in Him. That's the truth we need to proclaim, but how do we do it in a pluralistic age? How, how are we winsome? How are we persuasive? How can we communicate such that it is actually understood? And so that's what we're going to talk about from Acts 17. Okay? There's actually two things that I want to talk about in how we communicate the truth. This first one I'll spend most time on, which is proclamation. How do we proclaim the truth? The second one we'll look at is, is, is transformation. How we, how we live as a community to demonstrate the truth. Okay, but we're going to spend most of our time here on proclamation. Now, in our current pluralistic culture, our culture says that dialogue is best. And again, I can, I can agree to a certain point to that. Dialogue is good. I want to hear from those that I'm speaking to so I understand where they're coming from and so I can communicate the truth of Scripture effectively. But that's not what is meant in our day and age. Our day and age dialogue means that you go to the table without any kind of hidden agenda to change someone's mind. You go there with an open mind and you go there with somebody else of different faiths and, and you're seeking to communicate to one another so you can come to some kind of agreed upon truth. That's the idea of dialogue in our day and age. So we here as Baptists, as Protestants, as Reformed, we should come together with Roman Catholics and have dialogue and leave there recognizing that we're brothers and sisters and that we have a common belief in the scriptures, we have a common belief in the triunity of God, and we should just leave it at that and not talk about our differences that would be how dialogue is perceived in our day and age okay that's not the biblical way to do proclamation okay and we're going to see here that paul actually goes and proclaims a message that is very direct and uncompromised he's not going to a group of of different philosophers okay we got stoics we got the epicureans we have jews we have other faiths and religions represented he's not going there to dialogue and to come to some common denominator so he can leave there and say okay yeah we're in agreement mostly he's going there to proclaim and so that's what we must do as christians too to be marked by proclaimers as ones who are going to proclaim truth and let's see how he does that here in scripture so Acts 17 i'm going to read again verse 22 down to the end of the chapter Okay, so we have the text again fresh in our mind. I'm going to read this text and then draw six different reflections, meditations from this text in Acts 17. So starting in verse 22. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and, and everything. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed on a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now we're going to look at this sermon. This is a sermon in a nutshell. This is a summary of what Paul preached on that hill in Athens. Now this is not all of what he said. This is a summary of what he said. No doubt he was preaching for an hour or, or perhaps even more. And he's preaching to a pluralistic crowd. So what can we learn on how to proclaim truth in a biblical manner. Okay, so six things from this text. Some longer than others, some really quick to get at. First, notice in the text how there is no foundation of Christian truth in its hearers. Sometimes we can despair by thinking, well, our world just doesn't understand what Christianity is. They don't even know who, who God is. Well, that was Paul's audience here. No understanding of Christian truth. And the same is true today. When you go on the street or you talk to a neighbor or talk to a friend and when you say God, chances are they're not thinking creator God, father, son, and spirit. Chances are they're thinking force, spirituality, or some other idea. They may Maybe God is, is in everything. Okay, so when you say God, it doesn't mean that people are thinking the same thing that you think when you say God. The same was true whenever Paul went there. They had no foundation of Christian truth, and so it's the same in our society today. Second, because there's no foundation of Christian truth, he here proclaims the truth. There's a proclamation of truth, but there's a flexibility in terms of who he's addressing. It is not the same as when he went to a synagogue, as when he went to speak to these philosophers in Athens, who are idol worshippers. So his the things that he, his content would have been different. His his common ground that he established in them would have been different. And so look at verse twenty two and twenty three in Acts seventeen. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, "Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious." For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So you had an understanding of, of, of somewhat of what their worldview is, what their religion was. And he didn't come to dialogue, he came to proclaim truth. This is, this is how you practice, this is how you worship. Now, now let me proclaim to you what you don't know. Let me proclaim to you the truth of this one true God who has made heaven and earth and all that is in them. And so he comes to proclaim truth. The third thing, there is common ground established. Common ground established. Okay, so he uses this altar as an unknown God in order to begin a conversation with them. And then he also quotes even from their own poets, their own philosophers. Look at verse number 28. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being, or as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Those aren't quotes from scripture. Those are quotes from Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who have written in their day and age. So Paul has done his homework here in order to establish some common ground, some truth that they would hold to in order to further communicate to them in an effective manner. And so he establishes here common ground. Now the common ground here is not, as I said before, not to end there and say, good, we agree on these points and let's ignore our differences and go our separate ways. No, this common ground is established for a particular reason. And that brings us to number four. So common ground is established, number four, so that he can persuade and counter the ideas of the day. He establishes common grounds. This is what your own poets have said, so that he can count so that he can persuade and counter the prevailing ideas of the day. If you guys believe this, and this is what your own authors and your own poets, your own philosophers have said, then you really should believe this, what the Bible says, and not what you're believing and what your religion would say. Okay, so he's seeking to, to lay down common ground so he can counter their cultural narratives, their ideas, and to affirm biblical truth. Okay, and so he does that by quoting their philosophers. Now look at the truth he seeks to convey. I'm going to read again 24 through 27. It says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And so the point he is seeking to establish is that God... The one true God is the creator of heaven and earth, that he has made all of mankind, that all must serve him and are made by him and for him. And so he, he uses some of the common ground or some of the things that he's noticed. He says, he says, why are you guys making temples for God when God has made everything? They're here. It doesn't make any sense. If your poets have said that we are indeed his offspring then why do you bow down and worship a, a statue made of gold or wood that has nothing, nothing like us? 
but rather God has made us in His image. He has made all the nations. He has made all of mankind. And we're all called to seek after Him and know Him. And so He's establishing your common ground, truth from their own worldview, and says, if you value this, if you believe this, what you should really believe and really want to believe is the biblical narrative, the truth of who God really is. Okay? Now that seems very heady, um, hard to articulate. How do we do that in our day and age? Okay, and I want to give a few examples of how we might do this. Establish common ground with the idea of, of tearing down ideas that our culture holds and our pluralistic society holds in order to then teach or lead people to the biblical truth. Okay? Two examples. Trying to follow the same model here that we have in Acts 17. The first example is this. On the topic of dignity. Okay? Using dignity as an example. I'm going to read a few quotes from Dr. Donna Hicks. Okay, She's written a book, teaches conferences on dignity. I don't know Donna Hicks. I found her on the internet. But she's written a lot of stuff on dignity. Got a lot of stuff after her name. And she travels around and teaches on dignity. Not a Christian. She writes this. Dignity is our inherent value and worth as human beings. Everyone is born with it. She continues and says this. After people learn about dignity, a remarkable thing happens. Everyone recognizes that we all have a deep human desire to be treated as something of something, something as someone of value. I believe that it is our highest common denominator. This shared desire for dignity transcends all of our differences, putting our common human identity above all else. Okay? This is from a secular psychologist today who is writing books and who is promoting this idea of dignity. And I think if you were to talk to people in our culture today, is dignity a good thing? Yes. Do we all have inherent dignity? Yes, we do. Okay? Now, how do we use that truth and do like Paul, even as some of your own poets said, even some of your own psychologists have said that dignity is something intrinsic that we all possess as human beings, how then do we use that common ground to reject the narratives of today and then to affirm biblical truth? Just to ask people, yes, we all have dignity, we all have value, we all have worth. Then how does the world's understanding of our origins and how we got here translate to any of that? Because if we have evolved from apes who evolved from, from fish and down to some bacteria floating in a pool of sludge, how do we have inherent dignity? How do we have dignity that is somehow different than a chicken that we put on our table and we eat? Does not chickens have dignity too? They, they've evolved just as we are. In fact, if you look at the chicken's evolutionary progress, the chicken used to be a Tyrannosaurus Rex. You gotta feel... <laughs> it's true. It's true. You gotta feel bad for the chicken. You know, he was, he was much better before. And so where does, where does our dignity and our value come from? That our society affirms is a good thing. How does Donna Hicks know that there's a, there's a longing for, for all human beings to be some, something of value? And it's really, the truth is, because we're made in God's image. Because evolution is not true. Because the Bible says you've been made by God and you've been made special. You've been made in His image and He has bestowed upon you dignity and value and worth. And so you are not an animal. 
You have not been evolved from innate. You are a human being who is made in the image of God. And you've been made to reflect His glory and greatness. You've been made to love. You've been made to experience joy. You've been made for relationships. You've been made primarily to know God and to be satisfied in Him. And so even if someone rejects that line of reasoning, they say, I don't believe the Bible. You should at least tell them, yes, but you should, at least, you should want this to be true. Right? Someone who's an, a non-believer who thinks that the Bible is just some ludicrous ideas of these old guys who have penned down these thoughts about God, they should want it to be true because of what they view about dignity. The same is true for these men in Athens. Because of what they believe and what they know and what they hold as value, they should want what Paul is saying to be true and seek after God. That's one example. Another example is this. Take a person who feels guilt. Guilt, by the way, is a common emotion to every single human being. Even if you're three years old, you've experienced guilt. We all experience guilt from one degree or another. If you look at modern psychologists, you read guys like Freud, they tell you that that guilt is somehow some suppressed sexual desires that you had as a child that weren't fulfilled and so now you live with guilt. It's ridiculous. We feel guilty because we think we've done something wrong. And why does everyone feel guilty? Because we've all done something wrong. Because the Bible is true. Because God has made us in His image and He's written His law upon our heart. And so no matter how much entertainment we absorb ourselves in, no matter how much distractions or drugs or things that we give our lives to, we all experience guilt because we've all done wrong. And so the Bible's narrative explains why our guilt is there because we've broken God's law and our guilt is there as a mechanism to lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, so that we would seek after God and find Him and find forgiveness. A true way to alleviate our guilt So again, a non-believer should want this to be true, even if it seems far-fetched to them at first. They should want this to be true. They should want the idea that our guilt can be completely eradicated by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. They should desire that because they know guilt. And so they they should want Christianity to be true. And that's what we want to communicate to people. Look at verse 27 again. It says, So that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us. Okay? So those are examples of using values in our current culture, common ground, things we can agree on in order to counter their ideas and then to present biblical truth, to bring them to Christ. The fifth reflection from this text of Scripture. He doesn't just counter the narratives of his day, try to convince them that that God has made them, but he moves to Christ and to our needed response. Okay? Christ is the goal of this sermon. Christ is the goal. So he moves to Christ and our needed response. Look at verses 30 and 31. After he's finished arguing for the 
correct nature of God. He says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, this is when he moves to the goal of what needs to be the goal of all of our preaching, all the sharing of our gospel, to the Lord Jesus Christ and what we need to do. And so there's four major truths that, that Paul here is seeking to establish that we must also seek to establish in our culture today who God is, who we are as man made in God's image, and then what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in order to reconcile us to God, in order to deal with our guilt, to deal with our shame, to deal with our sin. And so Christ has come to die and rise again. And then our needed response is to repent and believe. So four things, God, man, Christ, and response. And so here he preaches about Christ and how we must respond. No doubt he would have shared with them that Christ walked this world, that he lived a perfect and sinless life, and that he, and he did so publicly, not behind closed doors, that he did miracles publicly, that, that his skeptics could not deny the authenticity of his miracles. He did out in broad daylight, undeniable miracles, publicly. And that not only did he do all these things publicly and teach publicly and demonstrate authority and cast out demons publicly, but he went and he died publicly. People actually saw him dead. And the Roman soldiers who crucified him weren't amateurs. They knew how to kill people. And they killed him. And he was buried in a tomb and he rose again three days later, later publicly in front of hundreds of eyewitnesses. And in Acts 1-6 said he, said he did many proofs and for 40 days he demonstrated to his followers that he was truly resurrected from the dead. Jesus said all these things publicly and he did so so that we would know that our sins have truly been dealt with to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the true sacrifice for sin, that our sin could actually be transferred over to him and he could pay the debt, that, that penalty of eternal death in our place and then transfer us his righteousness so that we could stand before God forgiven. Christ did all that in his death and his resurrection. But he doesn't end there. He talks about his resurrection is not only a guarantee of our forgiveness of sins, but that his resurrection is a guarantee of his return in judgment. He says, God has appointed a day when Jesus Christ himself will come back in his body to judge. Judgment was part of Paul's gospel message. That God has appointed a day on when Christ was going to return to judge the world. And we have proof of this because he rose from the dead. He lives and he is going to Return, And so you can know that for certain. And so what must be done in light of Christ's death and his resurrection and his imminent coming in judgment? He says here in verse number 30 that he commands all people, regardless of your religious background, denomination, affiliation, ethnicity, commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from your sin, to turn from your way of life, your thoughts about truth or God, and to come to the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. 
to come to him who, who says, bring all your burdens, bring all your cares to me. My, my burden is light. Come, come to him who says, come you who are thirsty. I'll give you water. I'll give you eternal water. Come to you, you are hungry. I'm on the bread of life. Those who, those who desire eternal life, come to me, the Lord Jesus says, and I'll grant it to you as a gift. You don't have to work for it. You don't earn it. It's not a measure of your faith. It's not a measure of your tears. It's not a measure of your good works. It's not a measure of how long you've been a Christian or how short you've been a Christian or how bad your life used to be and how good it is now. It's all based on the fact that Jesus Christ has died in your place and you receive that as a gift in faith. And you say it's all Christ alone. I'm a Christian because of a gift of Christ. I'm going to heaven because Christ died for me and he, he loves me and he's merciful towards me and that's it. You, you want me to explain more? I can't. It was the work of Christ in me. And so that's the message that he proclaims. And it's a message that we have to proclaim in our day and age. And we have to be sure that we have done what he's called for here. You have to ask yourself, have I re- repented and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Have, have I been transformed by the love of Christ? Have I, have, have I been indwelt by the Spirit of God? Do I know what it's like to have the burden of my sins forgiven and lifted by the grace of God? Then come to Christ. And so he preaches and proclaims this message to a pluralistic hearer. The sixth and last point I want to make from this text. Sixth and lastly from Acts 17 is this. Not all will respond in faith. Look at verse 32 and 33 with me. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. So you have two people who are very famous who believed the message of Christ. We know they're famous because he felt like their names should be down there so people would, would know, wow, Dionysus, Damaris, they believed. I know these people, I've heard of them. Okay, and others too. And so as the gospel message was proclaimed, as he proclaimed truth and sought to establish common ground, counter the narratives and the ideas of the day and to establish Christian truth and then to warn people to flee from the wrath of God that is to come, call them to repent and believe in Christ. We have a variety of reactions. Some mocked. And people will mock us today as we proclaim the truth of Scripture. They'll laugh. They'll scorn They might even throw coffee at you or spit on you. And we've had that done before. They might rip up literature in front of your face. They might, if you're out there with your children, they might call you a child abuser. And how dare you practice and teach these religious ideas to your children. You should be ashamed of yourself. You're a despicable human being. I've had that said to me before. People are going to say that to you. They're going to mock you. Look what they did to Christ. They're going to do the same to you as a follower of Christ as you proclaim the truth. But not all are going to mock. Some here are going to want to hear more. Some are going to say, boy, that's a good thought about dignity and evolution versus God being the creator. 
I want to hear more about this God. Tell me more. Tell me more what the Bible says. I've heard this. Is this true? They're going to, they're going to want to hear more. <clears throat> and others are going to believe. Others are going to believe. They're going to repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as we proclaim truth in a pluralistic age. Paul is there going and proclaiming the gospel from Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. These are people who have no Christian truth or background in their past and people are coming out of there believers in Christ. How is that possible? It's supernatural. It's a work of God. We proclaim truth and we have the confidence that if we are persistent and faithful in proclaiming truth, that people are going to get saved. People are going to believe in Christ because it doesn't depend upon us or eloquence. It depends upon the power of God and His grace and His mercy. And so we go with that confidence and proclaim the truth of Scripture in this day and age. Nothing is more supremely relevant. And so we need to be people who proclaim. Now the thought I want to leave us with this morning is actually a thought I'm going to continue next week. To speak in a pluralistic culture, we need to be proclaimers. It needs to be involving proclamation of truth, but it also needs to be transformation of our lives. Who we are as a community speaks to the world just as much as our words do. And so we can't just say, well, I'm not going to proclaim the gospel. I'm just going to live it. Neither can we say, I'm just going to proclaim truth and I'm going to ignore what the Bible says about what it means to live out the truth. And so we need to be proclaiming the truth and living the truth. And we're going to spend the entire time next week talking about how we cultivate a transformed community. But what we need is not only to proclaim the truth, we need homes that model the truth. We need homes marked by love and peace and kindness and service. We need men here who are Christian men who act like men and not boys, who give themselves for the sake of others rather than wanting to entertain and satisfy their boyish desires. We need fathers who model, fathers who lead, fathers who teach spirituality and worship and the scriptures to their children. We need women who are adorned with modesty and gentleness. We need children who are marked by respect and obedience. We need a church that is not a business, not an organization, not a a well-run marketing group, but we need a family who loves one another. That's what we need. We need a family who prays for one another, who eats for one another, who, who lives together, whose lives are marked by service for each other, a warmth and a joy. A community of people who are diverse yet in harmony with each other because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be relevant by proclaiming the truth and by modeling the truth by being transformed by it. And I hope as, as I say these things that you want these things. That these are things you say, yes, I, I want that. I want to, I want to proclaim the truth. I want to be relevant by speaking eternal truth. And I want to live a transformed life to be a witness to the truth. And if you want that, let's strive for that. Let's, let's live this week with that as our goal. That is our mindset. Let's, let's take these truths and live them out. Let's do that by God's grace and by his strength. Let's pray.